We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. We've been working our way through the core beliefs of our church. And tonight, the message is about the way that we worship, what we believe regarding what we're actually doing right now, what this worship service, what kind of drives it, and what's behind it. Now, the way a church worships, that's called its liturgy. A church's liturgy is the way that a church goes about worshiping God. So liturgy, think of it as a kind of a fancy word for a church's tradition or a church's habit of what it does when it gets together for worship. Now, some churches have a very elaborate liturgy, like the Eastern Orthodox or a Roman Catholic Mass. If you've ever been to the Eastern Orthodox or the Roman Catholic Church, you know that the liturgy would be much more elaborate than what we're doing here tonight. And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, you have churches that have a very informal liturgy, a liturgy that's not elaborate at all, like maybe a house church or a Pentecostal church. But they still have a liturgy. They still have a custom, a standard way of going about and doing worship. All groups have a liturgy. All groups have a habit. Now, it might not be written down, and it might not have fancy outfits and all. What I'm saying is that all churches have a liturgy. Now, our liturgy is orthodox. That means that it's old. It's very, very old. It's ancient. It goes back 1500 to 2000 years ago. It goes all the way back to the first five centuries of the church. Actually, we'll see in just a moment that it even stretches back beyond that because the very first Christians were Jews who converted to Christ. And when they came into Christianity, they didn't throw out their Jewish ways of worship. They brought it with them. And there's a lot of this kind of Jewish custom that's been handed down through the ages And it sits right at the heart of what we're doing here tonight. Now, when I say that our church's worship, our liturgy is orthodox, that's the first thing it means, that it's this very old tradition that goes all the way back to the beginnings of the church. But we're also saying that our church worships in a way that is very similar, not historically to what's been going on, but right now all around the world, that all around the world, There are some common elements to worship that you're going to find no matter what culture you're in. So you can think of orthodox liturgy as being trans-historical. It stretches across time and transcultural. You can find these elements I'm going to talk about tonight in Africa and South America. You can find them in Europe and Asia. You can find them all over. In order for us to kind of understand what orthodox liturgy is and what it looks like, it's helpful if we think about the way we worship through two lenses, the lens of content and the lens of structure. Two lenses that help us to see in what ways our church's liturgy, the way we worship, is what we call orthodox. First of all, the content of the service. When we look at Christian worship down through the ages, all the way to the beginning, um, think about this for a minute. The New Testament, okay? 
The New Testament was written between 50 A.D. and around 97 A.D. It was written in the second half of the first century. So Christ died in, in the early 30s, we would say. Some would say the late 20s, okay, A.D. Within 20 years of that, the New Testament was being written. And it was written over a course of about five decades, okay? So the last book of the New Testament was probably the book of Revelation, probably written in the late 90s, in one, around 150 A.D., okay? So 50 to 60 years after the last part of our Bible was written, we have, we have a letter, we have something that a guy by the name of Justin the Martyr wrote, and it is a description of the way worship occurred, in churches throughout his area. And in this description, we can kind of get a feel for what worship has been like from the very beginning. Now, I go through all of that history just to say that we can really do this. We can really talk about what worship has been like for a very long time. And when it comes to orthodox worship, worship that that gets this kind of source of motive in this long tradition of the church, going back into the New Testament and beyond that into the Old Testament, when we let that inform us about what worship is about, what its content is about, it is always about remembering God's mighty deeds in the past and anticipating God's mighty deeds in the future. That the content of orthodox worship centers around memory and anticipation. Orthodox worship, when you look at worship around the world and back in time, you see that worship services in churches that are sensitive to this kind of stuff, it always centers around remembering the mighty deeds of God in the past and anticipating the mighty deeds of God in the future. Look with me at the passage that Heather read to us, Psalm 78. This is just one example. The challenge in picking the scripture for this Sunday was which scripture to pick out. This is just one single example of how Jewish worship that got picked up into Christian worship centered around the past and remembering. Now, as I read through these verses that Heather read, but as we listen to them one more time, I want you to pay attention to how it's not so worship is not a therapy session for you. It's not an inspirational kind of refueling moment for you. It's for you to remember God's mighty deeds. Okay. Look at verse 1. Give, O ear, my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation, get this, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. Now, this is all over the Old Testament. That's what they did, the Jews did, when they got together to worship. They said, let's tell each other what God's been doing since the beginning. Let's remind each other. Let's intentionally force ourselves to reflect on the mighty deeds of God 
working to bring this whole world into renewal. But keep going. Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob. So in other words, he's pointing back to what God did when he made a people for himself, the Israelites. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Now look at this next part. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Notice, ethics. How you behave flows out of remembering God's mighty deeds in history. So their worship was concerned with living right and being holy and all of this. It's, it's just that that was the result of remembering the mighty deeds, the mighty things that God has done in his intervention in this world. Orthodox worship centers around remembering, but not only remembering, it also centers around anticipation. It looks to the future, to the future of what God's going to do. Now, this is the passage that Gates read to us out of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Here we find Jesus establishing the ritual that we're going to participate in here in a few minutes, the ritual of Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, depending on if you're Emily or Matt. You call it one of those two things. Matt the Baptist, Emily the Episcopalian. Eucharist, what? Here we find Jesus establishing this ritual. Okay, now notice how he establishes it, though. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's here's the part I want us to really pay attention to. I tell you, I will not eat again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you. In my father's kingdom. About 20 years after Jesus told his disciples to do this, Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And he's talking to them about this very ritual that they've already, within 20 years, they've begun practicing communion every Sunday. And he's trying to help them do a better job at practicing it because they were doing it, but they were kind of wonky. And he says to them, listen to this phrase. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in other words, what I'm trying to show you is that this is the other half of the story. Orthodox Christian worship, its content is this kind of dual focus. Remembering the mighty deeds of God in history and anticipating the return of Christ when he completes his work in history and makes all things new. So when you put these two things together, memory and anticipation, we see that the content of Orthodox liturgy is a story. Something that stretches all the way back and goes all the way to the future. It's, it's the true story about this world. That's the content of Orthodox liturgy, the true story of this world from its creation to its fulfillment. Now, it's in our songs. 
It's in our prayers. It's in the scripture reading. It's in the preaching and the, in the Eucharist all over this service. We are being told about the mystery of God at work in this world, bringing healing and salvation. And the Bible clearly teaches us to center our worship, not around how you can get yourself all straightened out, but around that story. You see, worship centers around us hearing that story and it evoking a response in us that can only be described as delight. We we sing praises to God because we're delighting in his work in this world. We pray to God out of the delight of our heart. We thank God. We, We do all of this that we do together as a way of remembering the story, anticipating the future, and then our hearts erupting in delight. And everybody's delight obviously looks different, right? In some places, the, the delight is dancing around. In some places, the you know, delight just registers on different kind of emotional levels. But what I'm trying to show you is that the content of Orthodox liturgy is the true story of the world. And it's that story that shapes our spirituality. It's that story that, that shapes us and forms us as a church. It's that story that motivates us in mission. Now, that's the first lens that you can look through to kind of get a feel for what what orthodox liturgy is. Now, it has nothing to do with style. That's the thing. It's transcultural. You find this all in lots of different cultures. And style is always about the neighborhood you live in. Style is what we bring to this content. Style is a cultural thing. Now, the second lens that we can look through to kind of understand what orthodox liturgy is, is the lens of structure. Structure. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is the passage, the single verse that Chris read to us. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is, we've, we've read this verse so many times in our time together because it's so important. This is the very first summary of what the very first church did. That's why it's so important. This is the first piece of historical data describing for us what life was like for the very first Christians. And what does it say? The very first thing it tells us about them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here we have Scripture and Eucharist. The apostles' teaching, that Scripture... The breaking of bread, part of what that means is Eucharist. I mean, think about it. In a minute, when we have our communion, I'm going to hold this bread upright and I'm going to break it. Okay, that's part of what that phrase is talking about. So they devoted themselves to these two actions. Orthodox liturgy is structured by these two things, the word and the table. The word and the table. I told you there's... We have a document from Justin Martyr that's dated to 150 AD. Okay, within a lifetime, people still living who knew some of the apostles who were around probably when John was alive. All right, there we have documents from the earliest of the church outside of the New Testament. And when it describes their their worship service and they say, you know, we find this worship service everywhere we go. It's always structured around these two things, the word and the table. Scripture and Eucharist. 
Now, by the word, what are they doing? They're, they're using scripture to remember what God has done. They're using scripture to remember the mighty deeds of God in history. And we, we pray scripture and in our group, we sing scripture and we listen to scripture and we listen to a message about scripture and then the Eucharist. And this is the focal point of Christian worship. Look, we live in a world of mystery. I mean, science has been trying to tell us that what you see is what you get until you get to physics. And now physics is telling us that there's a whole lot more going on, right, than what we can always measure and quantify. We Christians know this. We know that bread and wine, in a mysterious way, it's not just an object lesson. It's not merely a ritual In the bread and the wine, in some mysterious way, God is really present. When God's people gather together and they worship God, and then they participate in this ritual that we're going to participate in, Christ says, that is my body, that is my blood. How? I have no stinking idea. He doesn't call us to understand it. He calls us to know, look, Right now, we're remembering, we're learning, we're doing lots of things. But in a minute, we encounter. We experience the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ in the Eucharist is an objective reality. It's not something you have to work yourself up to think really hard about it so you feel kind of in a significant way about it. It is God giving himself to us in tangible Earthly objects. It's the high point of worship. Now, what I want to do is take our worship guide and just walk through our worship service. And I want to point out not so much what all the different bits and pieces of it mean. I want to point out what we're doing, whether you know what you're doing or not. Okay, think of it this way. You don't have to know what happens in an internal combustion engine of a car in order to get in it and drive it, right? Now, if you know about the miracle of engineering that that is helping you put along on the highway, you might have a deeper kind of satisfaction in it. But what happens in worship doesn't depend on your reflection. Because worship is something you do, whether you fully understand it or not in a similar way that driving a car. Now, it's good to understand what's going on, but what I want to do right now is talk about what we're doing, what is actually being accomplished when we gather here for worship. Look look first um, on page two. Page two. Week after week, for millennia around the globe, people begin their worship with a call to worship. Now, often it comes from the Psalms. It it did in, in ours today. But here's what's happening. When we gather here to worship, we are responding to God actually calling us to this moment. You didn't come here because you decided to come here. God called you here and you responded to that call, whether you fully understood that or not. Just like the internal combustion engine of a car. Whether you understand it or not, there's some things happening. Whether you know it or not, you have come here by the invitation and in response to God. And then notice what happens next. Our response to God's calling us to worship is to the first thing out of our mouth, to bless God. We bless our creator. 
Why? Because we can't believe our creator. Now, whether you fully know what you're saying there or not, that's what you're doing. You're blessing God. And then Robert or Havala, whoever's leading worship, pray for us. I love this prayer in our service. It's kind of like we have this deep sense we're in over our heads. Holy cow! What have we showed up for? We don't know how to... We, we're not... We, we're messed up. And some of us are some really funky people. All of us are... Right? And so we ask God for mercy and grace. And then at this point, we typically sing. And singing is all over the Bible. I, I love what it says in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual th- songs with thankfulness in your heart. Ephesians 5.18 connects singing to being filled with the Spirit. And you know what? If you go back through 2,000 years of Christian history and then 2,000 years before that of Jewish history, you know what people do when they gather to worship the Creator? They sing. They sing. Somehow, when we sing the story of God's mighty deeds in history, you know what's happening? The satellite dish of your soul is getting tuned in. It's getting primed. It's tilting toward God and his agenda. Now, look at the bottom of page page three. The Lord be with you. See that part? It's a greeting. God greets us. Think about it. He calls us to worship. We respond by blessing him and asking him for mercy and grace. And then we erupt in song. And then he welcomes us. You know the story of the prodigal son? In other words, it's like the father running out to the end of the lane every day, waiting on his son to come home. And as soon as we get here, God welcomes us. With open arms, the Lord be with you. See, Robert is saying right now, the Lord is, I'm not trying to tell you what it means. I'm trying to tell you what's happening. In that moment, the Lord is embracing you just like he did with the prodigal son. He's wrapping his arm. It doesn't matter how funky you've been that week. He called you here. And isn't it nice that when you got here, he doesn't say, get out of here. He calls you here and then he embraces you. Then we hear scripture read week after week. What are we doing when the scripture is read? We are absorbing the story, the story, the one true story of the world, right? Every week we have this reading out of the Old Testament and out of a Psalm frequently and then out of the New Testament. What's happening? We're being reminded of the story and the story is becoming for us a compass. It's becoming for us a map. Its heroes and its practices are becoming our habits and our practices. The story, it's getting into our blood. It's converting our imaginations. See, it's giving us the ability to see ourselves as as characters in this true story. The, The true story of what God is doing in this world. And then we turn to page five. After after the message, we have the creed. We recite the Apostles' Creed together. Now, this is a 1,600-year-old summary of what? The story, right? Remember how it begins? I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. And then look how it ends. And I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This creed, it, 
It, it condenses the story so that we hear it one more time, washing over us, converting our imaginations, getting into our blood. And it's, it sweeps all the way from creation through Christ to the fulfillment of creation. It's a declaration. It's our pledge of allegiance. It's our confession of fealty to a foreign king. You know what worship is? It's a weekly renewal of marriage vows. In this moment, every week, I am renewing my vows to the creator. I am pledging my allegiance to my king again. And I need that every week. I need to do that week in and week out. That's the creed. And then what happens? We pray. Why do we pray? Because God is here. Because he's not only called us here, but he has come into this room in a unique way and welcomed us. And he is really here. And in this moment in our worship service, when we pray, we put it all, we bank on that. We bank on the fact that he is really here and that he's really concerned, not just with our soul. But what do we pray for? Stuff. We pray for political systems and poverty. And we pray... We bank on the fact that God is here and he is concerned about this world. And so we take our concerns to him. We pray for each other. We pray for the church. We pray for the world. What I want you to see is that one of the things worship does is it pulls you out of yourself. We're called out of ourselves. We're called here to pray for the world. The worship isn't about God revolving around you. It's about you and me finding our place in his story as he transforms the world. And in the prayers of the people, we take him up on that. We hold him to that. We stand boldly before him in the company of the saints. And we offer these requests to him, knowing that prayer is the most practical thing we can do. Then we hear the call to confession. Look at the bottom of page six. We're reminded of God's commandment. The first commandment is this. Here, Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. What's happening in that moment? A bright spotlight is being put on our failures. We gather ourselves into the presence of God. We intercede for the transformation of the world. And we suddenly see this spotlight on us. And in this moment, we're guilty. But here's the way a worship service is countercultural it doesn't repress guilt, it doesn't ignore guilt, it doesn't try to paper over guilt. Every week we have this ritual that reminds us of our failures and it forces us to confess them, to own up to them. Every week, to, every week I find myself confessing the same things over and over and over. And then I love this part of the service. We're not left in our despair. We confess our sins and God answers, I forgive you. And it's a gift. It's, it's an overflowing gift. It's a gift that overflows from the work that Christ did on the cross. 
And then what do we do? We immediately turn to one another and say, hot dog, <laughs> peace of Christ to you. I got peace. In my- I'm so glad with Christ. Christ has made me at peace. And I extend that peace to you. I recognize that he's giving you that peace to you. Also, we immediately declare to one another the peace that comes from confession, repentance and forgiveness. And now we're ready for the high point of the service. Now we're ready for the Eucharist. And we have this kind of ho-hum stuff, right? Bread and wine, stuff that you've dealt with all week long. See, that's the beauty of what's happening here. God transforms us in some mysterious way into his real presence. And it's just a tiny little picture of what he's doing to this whole world. It's just a tiny little picture that there is coming a day when his presence, the Bible says, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the sea. Now, I don't even know the difference between water and sea. It doesn't say like water will cover the the bottom of the ocean. That somehow God's presence will be all in all. And, and And in a moment, we get to taste that. We get to really experience that. We don't get to just think about it happening one day. It happens to us. We take Christ into our mouths and we digest him into our bodies. And the real presence of Christ is here. And think about this incredible picture. It's a picture of the day, Isaiah says, when all will be welcome at the table of God. There will be no hoarding. There's coming a day when no one will go to bed hungry. There's coming a day when it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich or ignorant or educated or black or white, adult or child. You will have the same access to Christ. Think about this. When you come up here, you all get the same piece of Christ. You all get the bread and the wine. All of us, we're on the same level at that point. We're all a bunch of beggars coming to Christ. And Christ is giving himself to all of us fully. We get to experience that. And then after that, after you take the bread and the wine, you walk past our offering plates. It's kind of an awkward thing, right? You get the bread and the wine and you pay for it. No, that's not what it means. See, the whole service is this kind of God works and God calls us. We respond in blessing, right? I mean, the whole service is this kind of swaying back. It's, it's this dance, right? So God gives himself to us. So in gratitude, the church for 2000 years after it takes the Eucharist in gratitude, it takes out its pocketbook, not to pay God off. But do, do you see that it kind of forces us to realize that the kingdom of God is not some ethereal, spiritualized thing. It's about bread and wine and money and the stuff of this earth. We're reminded that God in his kingdom is not disconnected from the rest of life. Just as worship touches our bellies, it touches our pocketbooks. The kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. And then look at page 11. At the end of the service, we're reminded that all of these things, while they're oriented toward God, They're centered around Christ. Next week, we'll talk about they're empowered by the spirit. All of these things push us out toward the world. Look at the last thing that will be said in the service. 
peace of Christ, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds and knowledge, love God and the Son, Christ, and the blessing of God, the Almighty, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Thanks be to God. It pushes us out to the world. The whole service is toward God, but it pushes us out to the world in our prayers, in our giving. We're giving for the world and in our witness. Now, that's what Orthodox liturgy does. It's a way of worshiping God by remembering his mighty deeds in the past, anticipating his mighty deeds in the future, structuring all of this around the twin pillars of word and table. And all of this in a way that's not so much a refueling service. Now, there's lots of churches that kind of Design their worship around refueling. Kind of get us charged back up. But all of this. It's about God. It's drawing our hearts to worship God. Now, a byproduct of this. And this is one of the primary reasons. That I have moved in a much more liturgical direction personally. Because a byproduct of this. Is that it tunes my heart. The first and greatest commandment is to love God. Not to think right about God. But to love God. In other words, this is our center. Not this. And we need the kind of worship. That as a byproduct. Forms habits in us. That primes the pump of our heart. In the direction of loving God. Because you're a lover. That is your basic mode of being in this world. You love. You pursue what you love. You think about what you love. At the basic level of of your being, you are a lover. And sin means we've loved the wrong things. And I want my children to grow up in the kind of church that forms the kind of habits in them. That primes the pump of their heart to love in the right direction. That's much more impressive than behavior modification. And that's what for 2000 years and even back beyond that. Orthodox worship has been about on the secondary level. It's been about forming the kind of habits that shape the kind of character. That our hearts love in the right direction. But the primary issue. Is that we're worshiping God. Let's pray.